0: use this though probably not original with him. I love this quotation that says nothing matters much and few things matter at all. Let that sink in for a moment and I think that's absolutely true nothing matters much and few things matter at all at least in the greater scheme of things. What that means is that most of what we deal with and most of what we worry over really doesn't matter Even things that are very, very, very important to us. For example, our jobs are very important, and we fret over that, of having the right job, of what's going on with our job, but in the long run, that really doesn't matter. Same thing with our money, or our houses, or maybe our cars, or even our health. These are the things that we often fret over, our money, how much we have, or what's going on with our house, or the automobile that we have, or maybe our health. In the greater scheme of things, those really don't matter. There's only one thing that really does matter, and that's the matter of being and living right with God. Let's start with 2 Corinthians 5 and in verse 9. All that really matters, not the house that you have, not the money that you have, the education that you have, or even the health condition you're in, what really matters is whether or not you're right, living right with God. Not a person present this evening would disagree with that, but let's establish that from 2 Corinthians 5 And in verse 9, 2 Corinthians 5 is one of those passages uh, that we find in 2 Corinthians where Paul is laboring to show this is what gives me my drive and makes me do what I do. And one of the things he mentions is at verse 9, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Him, or accepted of Him, the King James says. Paul said it was his goal, this was his focus in life, to be accepted of God, for God to be pleased with my life. In other words, to be well-pleasing to Him. Let's go to Matthew chapter 25 for a moment. This is a judgment scene passage of the separation of the sheep and the goats, those on the right hand and those on the left hand. And I want you to notice at verse 21, Matthew chapter 25 and in verse 21, that the text says (coughs) that to those, to some he would say, well done, good and faithful servant, Uh, enter now into the joys of your Lord. Well done, good and faithful servant, we're well pleasing to the Lord. Living right in the sight of God. Look later at verse 23. Again, well done, good and faithful servant. To those on the right hand, he would say, enter now into the joys of your Lord. In other words, they're living right in the sight of God. Let's go to another text. One more to establish that point. This time in Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4 and verse 19. When the apostles were called on the carpet for their teaching, the text says that Peter responded by saying, Peter and John answered and said, whether it's right in the sight of God, To listen to you more than to God, you judge. In other words, it's what's important is what's right in the sight of God. That's what's really important to us. Let's go one more time to Acts the 8th chapter, this time when Simon had sinned, that he was told by Peter, your heart is not right in the sight of God. So what I learned from all of those passages is the only thing that really does matter is living right with God. So with that in mind, let's talk about this principle. Let's talk about getting your life right with God. Look at a very first principle, fundamental study of getting your life right with God. That's all that really matters. Doesn't matter how much you know about all the scriptures. Doesn't matter if you know how to interpret the book of Ezekiel. Doesn't matter about if you can exegete the book of Revelation. Doesn't matter about your money. Doesn't matter about anything but your life being right with God. So let's start with this. Let's talk about how sin makes such a mess of our lives. That's what sin does. That's the big problem in the world. Is the problem of sin here's some very fundamental principles that we should all be familiar with let's start with what is sin what is the definition of sin in first John 3 and in verse 4 John says whosoever commits sin transgresseth also the law for sin is a transgression of the law what sin is is a violation or a transgression of the law of God now let's give an example of that by beginning in Genesis chapter 2 go back to the very beginning. The first law we have recorded is a law that God gave to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 2 and in verse 17, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. In other words, God said, you can eat of any tree you want to, but this one you cannot eat. Simple law. Easy to understand. Let's go to chapter 3, if you will, in verses 1 through 6. Satan, in the form of a serpent, tempted Eve, and she ate of it, and she gave to her husband, and he did eat. In other words, they violated the law. They transgressed the law, and therefore they committed sin. Now, it is doing the things that are forbidden by God. Let's go to James chapter 2 and in verse 9, where James is talking about having respect of persons, that if you respect persons, you commit sin. So here is something God has forbidden. And when you're doing the things that God has forbidden, that involves sin. So like in the case of, uh, of Genesis chapter 2, God forbid eating of that fruit, they did what was forbidden, and consequently that's sin. When one gets drunk, God has forbidden that, that's sin. When one curses, that's something God has forbidden, and that's sin. And on down the line we go, the things lying, God has forbidden that. Sin also involves the failure to obey commands. The one who knows to do good and does it not, to him it is sin, James 4, and in verse 17 says, so I can commit sin, not only by doing that which God has forbidden, but failing to do what God has commanded us to do. So we're defining sin simply, what sin is and what sin involves. Now let's raise another question, as we talk about sin making a mess of our lives, that who is guilty of that sin? Well, let's go to Romans chapter 3, and as you're turning there, let's talk about how we get to Romans 3. What I mean by that, what did chapter 1 and chapter 2 say that drives us into chapter 3? Chapter 1 shows that the Gentile world was in sin. That was an obvious thing. The pagan world is involved in sin. Chapter 2 shows the Jews are no better off. They're doing the same kinds of things. So he takes those two concepts in chapter 3 now and pulls them together. And here's his conclusion in Romans chapter 3 and in verse 9. Are we better than they? Not at all for we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they're all under sin. And then he proves that from Psalm 53. Having done that, come to verse 23 now. At verse 23 he said, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. His conclusion is this problem of sin is true with indeed with all men. Let's go to Romans 5 and in verse 12, the text says that death passed upon all men and that's because all have sinned. Not because they inherited it somehow, but because all have violated the law of God. So that's who's guilty. I know what sin is, and I know who is guilty. Here's another question. When does one become a sinner in their life? That may be a question you're pondering that you've pondered for a little while. When does one become a sinner? When do they come in need, and when does sin make a mess in their life? Well, let's turn to Romans 7 and in verse 9. This is the only passage, to my knowledge, that addresses specifically what we might call the age of accountability that I prefer to call the point of accountability. Other passages appeal to that or at least they talk about the principle but this is the only one to my knowledge that specifically addresses that. Paul's talking about his own life and here's what he says in verse 9, I was alive once without the law but when the commandment came sin revived and I died. Notice he said I was alive once without the law. That is I was living in a time that, that I was not accountable to law. He lived before he didn't live before the Old Testament law was given. You say, "How do you know he's talking about the Old Testament law?" Well, that's verse nine. Back up to verse seven. I had not known covetousness except the law had said, "Thou shalt not covet." He's talking about the Old Testament law, the same law that at verse four they were separated from by the body of Christ, by the law—I mean, by the death of Christ. So he's talking about Old Testament law. He didn't live before the giving of the Old Testament law. But he caused it before the commandment came, before it came into his life. In other words, before he was accountable to that law, before he was subject to that law, he could neither obey nor disobey that law. So now let's go back to verse 9. I was alive once without the law. What was your condition before God when you were not accountable to law? I was alive before God. I had life had nothing to separate me from God. But when the commandment came, came in what sense? I'm now accountable to law. I'm subject to the law. I can obey or disobey law. In other words, I've reached the point or age that I can understand law and I can violate the law. I can understand and I can comprehend and God's going to hold me accountable for that. What happened then, Paul? He said that's when I sinned and then I died. So when does one become accountable before God? When they reach the point in the age they can understand and comprehend the law of God and they can either obey or disobey the law of God and that's when they become a sinner. And that's when they stand in need of, of forgiveness of the sin because sin has made a mess and deed of their life. Now let's talk about the mess that it makes. What does sin do for mankind? Well first of all it separates us from God. What that simply means is we're separated from a relationship with God. Remember Romans 7 we just talked about. I was alive once without the law. The relationship I have with God is one of life. That's the condition you're born in. But when you reach the point you become a sinner, then you're separated from God. That's the idea of being of death. In Romans 7 in verse 9, well, I committed sin and I died. Isaiah 59 says in verses 1 and 2, your sins have separated you and your God. James 1 says, when lust hath conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin, when it's finished, it brings forth death, that is a separation from God. So no longer do we have a live relationship with God. We're separated from our God. But furthermore, here's what sin does. Sin brings eternal damnation. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. In other words, here's here's the consequence of that sin. It is an eternal separation from God. That's what he's talking about in that context, because it is in contrast to eternal life, Romans 6, 23. John 8, Jesus said that if you die in sin, where I go, you cannot come. He's going to heaven. He's ascending to the Father. You can't come there. You can't go with me, and you can't be with me if you die with sin in your life. There is eternal damnation. Now, it brings problems, and it brings shame, and it brings heartaches. In addition to eternal damnation and separation from God, how so? Well, in Galatians 6 says, we reap what we sow. If you sow to the flesh, you will the flesh reap corruption. you sow to the Spirit, you will reap life everlasting. And so it brings shame and honor, dishonor, and it brings heartaches. Proverbs 13, 15 says, the way of the transgressor is hard. What's that talking about? That there are consequences that come with sin. There is shame that comes with sin. In fact, Proverbs 6, said, wounds and dishonor will he get. That was talking about the harlot. The man who joined the harlot, what wounds and dishonor will he get? Not only is he separated from God, not only will he lose his soul, but in the meantime, there's wounds and dishonor he has. There's shame and reproach and heartaches that, brings, that comes on because of sin. So here's what we've learned from here. We know what sin is, who is guilty, and when one becomes a sinner, and sin just makes an absolute mess of one's life. Here's the second thing. This is the good news that we talk about in the gospel. If it weren't for this principle, there would be no good news. The good news is that God has provided a way to get our lives right with God. God has provided a way to get our lives right with God. Let's start with the book of Ephesians, and let's talk about how this was provided by the grace of God. Ephesians 2 and in verse 5 says, for by grace are you saved. Verse 8 says, for by grace are you saved through faith. So both texts simply tell us that you're saved by the grace of God. It's by the grace of God that we're saved. Now what does the grace of God do for us? Well notice in Hebrews chapter 2 and in verse 9, by the grace of God he tasted death for every man. That was by the grace of God. So God's providing a way that the mess could be cleaned up because he provided a sacrifice to pay the penalty for the sin. Here's something else grace does. Titus 2 and in verse 12 tells me that the grace of God teaches us. The grace of God which bringeth salvation teaches us, he says. Lotus with me at verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared unto all men. Teaching us, what? That denying ungodliness and worldly lust we should live soberly and righteously and godly in the present age. So what the grace of God does is it teaches us to do what? Go back to verse 12 with me. To deny, that is to say no to ungodliness in the world of us. So every passage that forbids something, that's part of the grace of God. Every passage that instructs me to do something is part of the grace of God. It tells me how to live. It tells me what God wants me to do. It teaches us how God would have us to live. Now let's go to Titus 3. And let's define from the context what grace involves. We talk about being saved by the grace of God. The grace of God is not merely some kind of, of hand where God just hands out His goodness to us. But the grace of God has to do with His mercy and His kindness and His love. Let's see a definition of that. Let's start at verse 2, or verse 3 rather. Paul talks about how we used to live, including himself in this. And what he's going to do is he's going to start off on the note of what a mess my life was in. Look at verse 3. For we ourselves also were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts, pleasures, living in malice, envy, hating, hateful, and hating one another. That sounds like sin had made a mess of his life, and certainly so. But what happened, Paul? Well, look at verse 4. But when the kindness of God, God was kind to me, might underline that in your Bible, and the love of God, might underline love, our Savior toward man appeared, Not by works of righteousness which we have done. In other words, we didn't earn this. But according to His mercy, might underline mercy, He saved us through the washing of regeneration generation of new and of the Holy Spirit. Now drop down to verse 7. That having been justified, here's your word, by His grace... What he calls grace at verse 7, he had called not by the works of our own righteousness, he had called it mercy, he had called it the love of God and the kindness of God when there was such a mess in his life that he described it verse 3. Now understand that God provided a plan. But let's go to Romans 1. God had a plan for making men right. That was called the righteousness of God. Throughout the book of Romans, three or four times the expression, the righteousness of God. So let's start in Romans 1 and verse 16 and 17, and let's see what that is and how it's used. Romans 1, 16 and 17. This is an expression that has to do with God's plan for making men righteous. It's not the fact that God is a righteous God. He is a righteous God. That's well established all through the Old and New Testament. But this expression, the righteousness of God, has to do with God's plan for making men righteous. And I'll try to give you evidence of that as we go along. Look at verse 16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ... For it is the power of God into salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that is in the gospel, verse 16, is the righteousness of God revealed. There is something that's revealed it's called the righteousness of God in the gospel. Now, the fact that God was a righteous, God was revealed in the Old Testament. But here is something that's revealed in the gospel. God has a plan for making men righteous. It was revealed in the gospel. And so God has revealed His plan for making men righteous. Now let's go to Romans chapter 10, and in verse 3 we'll see that same expression. The righteousness of God is something to which we submit, God's plan for making men righteous. Romans 10 in verse 3, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness. Were they ignorant of the fact that God is a righteous God? I don't think so. But they were ignorant of God's plan for making men righteous, and went about to establish their own righteousness, their own plan for being righteous. And have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. So it is something to which we submit. What I'm trying to establish is that God has a plan for making men righteous. God has provided a way that men could be righteous. Now, I want to suggest to you that that's greater than we can imagine. And here's how that's the case. Let's turn to 1 John 1 and in verse 7. Through the blood of Jesus Christ His Son we can be cleansed from all of our sin. Now you stop and think for a moment. If you count your sins and you can number them you say, well, I think I've got 2,314 sins in my life. And what if God's grace said, I will be willing to forgive you of 2,000 of those, but the rest of those you're going to have to wrestle with. You think, well, that's amazing that God would forgive that much of my sins. But look at 1 John 1 and in verse 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanseth us from all sin." So what the blood of Christ does is cleanse us from every sin that we've committed. doesn't matter how many they are. doesn't matter how big they are, how great they are. God's grace is forgiving of all of those sins. It's greater than what we can imagine. God's provided a way for us to be forgiven. Let's go to Hebrews 18 and verse 12. This is a quotation from Jeremiah 31. The value of that is that Jeremiah 31 says there was a new covenant coming that would be better than the old. And in what way was it better than the old and different from the old? Because under the new covenant, which is what he calls it in Jeremiah 31, God said, I'll remember their sins and iniquities against them no more. Under the old covenant, their sins were remembered again every year. Meaning sacrifice would be made, but those sins for which the sacrifice would made would come up again the next year. And then when the sacrifice would be made, it would come up again the next year. And the next year and the next year, their sins were remembered every year, the text says. But under the new covenant, there would be remembered again no more. In other words, whatever you've been forgiven of, it doesn't matter whether it's murder, drunkenness, lying and stealing, and you have been forgiven of that, God never brings those sins up against you anymore. God has a plan for making men righteous and taking care of the mess of sin. Let's go to Isaiah 55 and understand how abundant this is. In fact, this is in the context of that passage as you're turning there. It talks about God's ways are higher than our ways, and His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We often quote that more in the context, God's smarter than we are, God's greater than we are, and uh, no man can compare himself to God. But really the context of that is this, that God can abundantly pardon. He can forgive every one of the sins, and man can't fathom that. So let's see what the context says. Notice what he says at verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. In other words, God has an abundance of pardon. Whatever you've done and whatever sin you've committed, God invites you. This is an invitation, by the way, Isaiah 55. God's going to completely forgive. There's an abundance of forgiveness. However much sin you've got, God's got more grace than that. However much debt you have, God has more payment than that. Man can't fathom that, so that's why he says it. Verse eight: My thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways are not your ways. If the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways and your ways, and my thoughts and your. I think on a different level than you do. Man can't fathom that God would abundantly forgive of every sin he's done, no matter how great it is. And yet God said, "I'll do that." You can't think on the terms like I can think. He says that's his point. So it's greater than man can imagine. But let's go even further. I want us to consider some examples where God has provided a way to forgive some that it would look like they are the worst of people on earth. How could God forgive those? For example, we'll just mention three here just briefly. You take the Apostle Paul, he said he was the chiefest of sinners. What he's talking about was the time he persecuted Christians. He'd held the coats for those who stoned Stephen, Acts 7. He made havoc of the church, Acts 8 and 9. And yet when we come now to 2 Timothy chapter 4, 6, and 7, he talks about the hope that he has. He believed God had cleaned up the mess in his life. He thought he had. He felt like he had hope. Here's another example of that. Peter, for example. You remember, Peter was one that th- three times did not even knew the Lord. I doubt you've ever done that. I doubt you've ever told somebody, I don't even know who the Lord is. I don't know who Jesus is. I doubt you've begun to curse and swear saying, I don't know the man. Peter had done that. He'd acted as a hypocrite one time after he had taught the truth. Galatians chapter 2. And yet God had forgiven him later. He serves as an elder in the church. There were the Jews who had murdered Jesus in Acts chapter 2. The very ones that had killed him. And yet God had a plan for cleaning up their lives. Consequently, they could be forgiven and added to the church in Acts chapter 2. Here's the third thing. We're talking about getting your life right with God. Sin makes a mess in your life. God's provided a way to get your life right. But the way to do that is easy, and it's not all that hard. It's not that hard. It's not that difficult. And let's just share a few passages to talk about how easy salvation really is. Let's start with the invitation in Matthew chapter 11. You would think by the fact that there are people who see and hear the invitation of the Lord, and they push back, and they, they resist, it's because you might think, well, this is difficult. They can't figure it out. And they're wrestling with trying to figure out what God would have them to do, but it's not all that hard. And here's here's evidence of that. Turn to Matthew 11 and in verse 30. Backing up to verse 28, the text says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's an invitation to come and I will lift you the burden of sin. In other words, I'll I'll clean up the mess of sin in your life. You just come to me and I'll I'll help you with that. Come unto me, all ye that labor. Come to me all of you labor and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you shall find rest for your souls. Now verse 30. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What's his point? His point is the yoke is easy. That's like uh, putting yoke around oxen and and, and it's easy. It's an easy burden to bear. It's not that God puts the yoke upon you and you try to pull the load of, of obedience and you say I can't do that. I can't figure all this out. He says it's easy. Turn to 1 John 5 and verse 3. You probably know this passage by heart. Romans 5 and verse 3 says, For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome or grievous. In other words, what God would have you to do and how He would have you to live is not such a burden that you get weighted down and you say, I can't carry this. this is, He's expecting too much of me. I can't do that. It's not burdensome. It's not heavy. One of my favorite passages illustrating that point would be in Romans chapter 10, beginning at verse 5 where the Jews would use the terminology something that was easy they would say it's near it's within their reach something that's hard they'd say it's far away let's begin at verse 5 and see what it says remember these were the people verse 3 verse 3 these were the very ones who were ignorant of God's righteousness and went about to establish their own in other words they ignored God's plan and they made up their own plan and yet they're condemned because it was so easy now notice beginning at verse 5 Moses writes concerning the righteousness which is of the law that a man which does those things shall live by them. That's Leviticus eighteen five, by the way. A man which does those things shall live by them. What does that mean? One who would be justified, listen to this carefully, by the law, not under the law, but by the law, had to keep the law perfectly. That's Leviticus eighteen five. That's something far away and out of your reach. You can't reach that. You say, I'm going to be justified, but I'm going to keep the law perfectly, and I tried, but I failed. So it's out of your reach. It's far away. Let's go a little bit further. Look at verse 6. But the righteousness, here's a contrast, of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart, who shall ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above. That's hard. What if God said, you go into heaven and bring Christ down, and I'll save you by him. That's out of your reach. You say, I tried, but I can't do that. Or, verse 7, who shall ascend into the abyss? Assuming from the Jews' standpoint, Christ is still in the grave. What if God had said, you go raise him from the dead and I'll save you by it. You say, I can't do that. That's out of my reach. can't do that. Look at verse 8. But what does it say? Watch for this word now. The word is, here's your word, near you, even in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith which we preach. Near was something easy. It's within their reach. How easy is it? And how close is it? It's as easy as close as your mouth and as close as your heart. That's not an exhaustive list of the conditions of salvation. All it's saying is it's as easy as using your mind and using your mouth. It's as close as your mind and your mouth. They're always with you. It's within your reach. Salvation is easy as using your mind to believe in Christ and using your mouth to confess to Christ. That's how easy it is. Not hard. Cleaning the mess up isn't all that hard. Now let's raise this question, what must I do? What do you do to to get your life right with God? What do I do to get my life right with God? Let's start with Matthew 7 in verse 21. Let's observe the fact that there are conditions to receive the grace. We've talked about grace already, but there are conditions to receive. Grace is not an unconditional thing. Some have this concept in the religious world that grace is unconditional. If God is gracious, then it's just a handout. It's unconditional, not so. Matthew 7 in verse 21, the text says, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. So not just anyone who's religious, but it's the one who does the will of the Father. That's obedience. There's a second passage. 1 Peter 1 in verse 22. Seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth. How did they become pure in their souls? By obedience to the truth. So salvation... Receiving the grace of God is conditional. Hebrews chapter 5, one more passage on that point. Verses 89, speaking of Christ, Though he were a son, yet learned the obedience by the things which he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Salvation is offered to everyone who obeys. That illustrates the point that salvation is conditioned upon one's obedience. Now what are the conditions? Let's start with, hearing the gospel. Romans 10 and in verse 17 says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. If the Bible requires faith, we'll come to that passage in a moment, which it does. It requires us to hear the gospel because that's how we develop our faith is through the hearing of the gospel. So we must hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, of who he is, what he has done, and what he would have us to do. But in John 18 verse 21, Jesus said, if you believe not that I am he, You shall die in your sins. If you don't believe that I am, he is italicized, supplied by translators, meaning it's the same affirmation that he is the eternal nature of God as in the book of Exodus. I am has sent thee. Same concept. So he's saying if you don't believe that I am eternal, if you don't believe that I am deity, you'll die in your sins. You must believe in Christ. Believe indeed that he is the Son of God. In Acts 17, and 31, God demands repentance. That's a change of the mind. God has commanded all men everywhere to repent because he's appointed a day in which you will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained wherever he's given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. What is repentance? It's a change of mind with regard to past action and to change your life for the better. That is, you look at what you've done, the sin that's made a mess in your life and you say, I'm repenting of that. I'm sorry that I've done that. I want to live better and live different in my life. And consequently, then you make the change. The Bible also requires an acknowledgement of faith. That's the passage we just looked at in Romans chapter 10. Remember how easy salvation? It's within your reach. It's as easy as using your mind to believe and your mouth to confess. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. It's an acknowledgement of that faith. This is not a confession of sin. This is not an acknowledgement that Christ is your Savior. It's an acknowledgement that you believe Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then one must be baptized because Jesus said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Now that's easy. That's not hard. That's not difficult. But one more thing we'll talk about in the lesson of years. Let's talk about all that really matters. Remember we started on that note. Nothing matters much and few things matter at all. All that matters. What do we mean by all that matters? Well, I want to suggest to you that there's a time coming when there's going to be a judgment day. We don't know when that'll be. Hebrews 9 and in verse 27 said, it is appointed unto man once to die and after that, the judgment, there is a judgment day coming. When's that gonna be? I don't know, I don't know when the Lord's returning. I don't know when death could come, so I don't know when judgment's coming. But I do know that after death, we face judgment, the text says. There's a judgment day coming. Well, let's go further to 2 Corinthians 5 and in verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive the things done in your body, whether it be good or whether it be bad. So there's a day coming in which you're going to give an account for everything that you've done. How you've lived, whether you've been obedient, whether you've been submissive, there's a judgment day coming. And all that's going to matter in that day is whether or not your life is right with God. That's all that's going to matter. At that time, it's not going to matter how much money you have. Are you fretting about how much money you've got? Lack of money? Making more money? That's important. But when the day of judgment comes, it's not going to matter how much money you have. It's not going to matter what kind of car you drive, whether it even runs. That's not going to be asked at the judgment. Is your car running? Is it running well? Is it new? Did you wash it? Those things don't matter. In the day of judgment, it's not going to matter the house you live in, the education you have, the grades you made. Did you make an A on your test? Did you get your homework turned in on time? That doesn't matter. That's important in this life, but that doesn't go matter in the day of judgment. It's not even going to matter the shame that you've borne and the heartaches you've had. You said, "I've made a mess of my life, and I've got embarrassment, and I've got heartaches in my life." And I have the wounds and dishonor that came with the sin. I'm ashamed of the things that I've done, but it's not gonna matter then. It's not gonna matter the shame that you've overcome. It's not gonna matter how many sins and what they were of which you've been forgiven. It might be like the Jews in Acts two, who are guilty of murder. Maybe like Paul, who was guilty of making havoc of the church. It may be like Peter, who's guilty of die- denying the Lord. It may be like David who had, was guilty of the sin with Bathsheba. And on we could go with notable examples of sin. It's not going to matter what sins have been forgiven. What matters and the only thing that's going to matter is whether or not your life is right with God. And so we close this evening by asking you the question, is your life right with God? We've been talking about getting your life right with God. Sin makes such a mess in our lives. It makes a big mess. But by the grace of God, God has provided a way to clean all that mess up. It's not hard, it's easy. We've seen what we must do to make our lives right with the Lord. And when all things are said and done and all the dust is settled and judgment day comes, all that matters is whether or not our life is right in the sight of the Lord. Is your life right in the sight of the Lord? If you're not a Christian, your life's not right. Would you become one this very evening? Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge that faith you have and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins. It may be there's an erring child of God who needs to make correction. If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing?